Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Holy Father, we thank you that when we are born again, you promise to secure us for all of eternity on the basis of what the Lord Jesus did. You even gave us the Spirit as an earnest, as a down payment that the work you began, you will complete and you've sealed us with him forever, you said, for the coming day of redemption when in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. Help those who will hear this message who do not have that assurance that you have set your love upon them eternally to call upon Christ in faith and to receive his gift of salvation. As we open your word this morning, may our hearts be sensitive and teachable that we might be diligent to study the word to show ourselves approved as workmen who are not ashamed so help me, fill me, and use me, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you this morning to take God's Word and turn to the prophet Malachi. If you're new to the Bible, just find the first page, Matthew, and turn back a few pages, and you will soon be in Malachi. Some are new here every week, and you've never needed to bring a Bible to church. You need one here, though we have slides. You'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of God's Word in your lap. Malachi delivered the final message before the coming of the Messiah. And so he spoke some 400 years. His message was for the end of an age. And he was sent to help the people of Israel prepare for the first coming of Christ. But he also speaks to those of us who live at the end of this age. Because before we're done, we'll see he will look down the tunnels of time to the day in which we live. The first coming of Christ was characterized by a dark time. He was compared to a light shining in the midst of darkness. And his second coming will parallel his first coming. It will be dark days, lukewarmness, complacency. And so what he has to say, we would be wise to pay close attention to. It's a profound, practical, and indeed powerful message. He's often called a minor prophet based on the amount of material that he gave us. But I hope you've already begun to see that his message is not minor. Indeed, it is mighty. And like all the prophets, Malachi was the voice of Israel's conscience. The prophets then and now had a twofold responsibility. They were to comfort the afflicted, and they were to afflict the comfortable. And without a doubt, this man did both, I suppose, though, with an emphasis on the latter. I hope that you've read through the book. Uh, it only takes about 15 minutes. I listened to it on the way in this morning, and it took 14 minutes to listen to. It's a short little book, but as you read a book over and over and over again, you will begin to see how all the component parts fit together. And we've seen that he underscores six major issues that had uh, come into play with the people of Israel. And they're easy to spot. He will say, well, this is what God says, and then he'll come back and say, but this is what you say. But he also looks at brighter days. He looks down to a time when the Lord will indeed unfold his 
ultimate ministry and plan for the people of Israel. We call it the millennial reign of the Messiah. The promise of the kingdom is an Old Testament promise. The length of it is simply given in the New Testament. So it's four short chapters. It's actually only three chapters in my Hebrew Bible. Um, But I hope you have read it. Maybe you're beginning to get the big picture of it. Here's a chart to help make it stick a little bit. Uh, This is my chart, so you may not agree with it. Come up with your own, but divide the book in your mind. We see the book opens in the first five verses with a declaration of God's love. These people are floundering in the midst of their problems, and they begin to question that God truly loves them. And so God shows his care for them in the past as he contrasts his love that he set upon Jacob versus the Edomites. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God chose Jacob as the son of promise. He chose him to be the child through which the lineage would continue to unfold and which he would bring the Messiah. In the second section, uh, he moves from the declaration of God's love to the disloyalty of God's people. And again, it's a, a picture of God's complaint in the present. And he starts, if you remember, by indicting the priests, the leaders, for having lost their respect for the honor of God's name by the kind of sacrifices they offered the Lord. And God accuses them of showing more respect to their governor than than they did to him. And as Isaiah states, specifically in Isaiah 24, the people will be like the priests. And that's why leadership in the church is so important. The scripture warns about those who would clamor for the office of elder, knowing that indeed you will incur a stricter judgment. God reminds elders that they give watch over your souls as those who will give an account. But just having deficient leaders, as these people did, were no excuse. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so God, while he deals with the priests, he also deals directly with the people. That they had dealt treacherously with their wives. They had divorced their wives and damaged their children. They had robbed God of his rightful ownership with the tithes and the offerings. And then in the third section, we find the deliverance by God's servants. Again, he's looking at a coming time in the future, God's coming time in the future. And he assures the people of God that it's not vain to serve the Lord, that it pays to serve God, that God has in his library a book of remembrance. And in that book of remembrance someday, he will separate the wicked from the righteous, and the righteous will be rewarded. And of course, in this final section, he keys off the truth that Elijah is coming again. Elijah the prophet, Jesus said in one sense, John the Baptist could have fulfilled his ministry had the people of Israel responded to his message, but they didn't. But Elijah will come, Jesus said. And the prophet Malachi underscores it. That's why at every single Passover meal, every Jewish family will have an empty place, and sometimes they'll leave the door open, symbolically acknowledging that Elijah is going to return. Now, in this section, as this next chart shows, again, there's a number of sins that he's going to highlight. First, they are going to doubt God's love. They question, does God really love me? And people do the same today. Because their circumstances are difficult. Does God really love me? And they were, in essence, doubting God's love. Then, as we saw last time from Malachi 1 and verse 6, they were despising God's name. 
the name of God that represents who he is and what he stands for. They were despising it by the kinds of sacrifices they were giving. And he'll continue on that subject today. And then next time, we will come to the fact that they were debasing God's covenant in Malachi chapter 2. They were debasing it by the way they treated their wives, which in many ways pictured, like the new covenant, we are a picture of Christ's love for his church. And God uses the same bridal terminology in the old covenant with his people, Israel. And then in 2.17, they began to debate God's justice. God, if you're really just, why do the wicked prosper? Why do such people seem to be excelling while good people like us are not excelling at all? And he will quickly dismantle that. And then we will see in chapter 3 and verse 13 how they were depreciating God's storehouse. And sadly, this is about the only section of Malachi most people know. And sadly today, tithing is being unraveled. And we will see that that is a false teaching. Now, I know there are good men that affirm it, but it's wrong. And you need to be here for that message. And it's not self-serving, trust me. It's with our interest in mind. They were depreciating God's storehouse by robbing God. And so um, that's the six major sins, finally depreciating God's service. So that's where we're headed. Now, remember, Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is theos neustos, God-breathed, or most translations say inspired, and it is profitable. That includes Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and yes, Malachi as well. Malachi was written not just for the people in their day, but for the people in our day. Apart from the apostles' teaching that they could hear and listen and dialogue and discuss, it's not until almost 10 years into the history of the church that the first book of the New Testament is written. And so what did they study largely? Well, they discussed the apostles' doctrine, and when they were privileged to hear it, they would listen carefully. But they studied the Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and rightly so. Jesus said, the Scriptures speak of me. He said, Moses wrote about me. He said, Abraham saw my day and he believed. So Paul can say, speaking of the old covenant in Romans 15 verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times, the earlier times he's referring to, bring up the next slide, Romans 15 4, the earlier times that he was referring to was the old covenant, the Tanakh, that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Why? So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He is simply reminding the church at Rome that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament Scriptures did not expire in that age. And that's why I try to give a balanced diet in this church. We typically do a New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament book. Paul will tell the Corinthians that the Old Testament was written for our instruction, having just illustrated in a number of passages in the 10th chapter. This was written for our instruction, uh, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so I believe God wants to teach us something from Malachi's prophecy. Again, he lives at the end of an age, as we do as well. And we know we're at the end of an age, because at the end of this second age, God said he'd gather the Jewish people back into the land. And when you add the moral climate, the days of Noah, you add the days of Lot, 
You add the growing apostasy, and there's this convergence of signs all brought together. Our eyes should be wide open. And the Lord reminds us that at the end of the age, men's hearts will grow cold, and it will be characterized by apathy. And so Malachi goes after the heart. If you remember Malachi 1.6 last week, it says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Of course, God goes on to answer their question by reminding them by the sick, deformed, lame, second-rate sacrifices the priests allowed the people to bring. And sadly, there's more than one way to profane the name of God. We think of just swearing and cursing. But understand, not all profanity takes place in the bar room. Sometimes it takes place in the church house on Sunday morning by the kind of worship that we give. And as we'll see before we're done with the prophet Malachi, worship is not simply defined as what we do in here, but the prophet Malachi is going to intersect worship with service. And sometimes people come and they sing and they listen and they feel like, well, I'm worshiping God and I'm not diminishing that. It's important. It's an obedience issue. It's something that God says we're to do on the first day of the week. And if you're not, you're listening to me and you're able, you're living in sin and disobedience, just call it what it is or you'll never get it right. But understand that worship is also service, serving the living God. So with that said, that context set, I want to begin by reading Malachi chapter 2, the first nine verses, follow along. And now this commandment is for you. The priests, if you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts or of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way, you have caused many to stumble by the instruction, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and debased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Now, it seems like scandals have become a daily experience, whether it's governmental scandals or uh, scandals in the athletic realm or scandals in the university. And sadly, I suppose the worst scandals are those that happen in the church. So there's nothing new about scandals, and they will continue until Jesus comes back. But what I think we fail to oversee is that when I say the word scandal, you think of certain things in your mind. But you're probably not thinking about the kind of scandal that this prophet is going to highlight 
that pastors and congregants can be guilty of today. He is speaking about corruption in the priesthood. I thought about titling it, but it was a little too long. Pardon me, there's manure on your face. (laughs) Because that is actually in the text of Scripture this morning. And when scandals happen in the church, the failure first begins with the leaders, but neither are the members exempt. No one can use the excuse of some pastor who fell or some kind of scandal as a reason why they don't follow the Lord. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And it would be easy to say that this short little book, four chapters, three chapters in my Hebrew Bible, applies primarily to priests. But understand, under the new covenant, if you've met Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are a priest. Now, you may not wear a clerical collar. And personally, I'm not in favor of that because it tends to make a laity, clergy distinction. And certainly when a man in a church calls himself a priest or he asks you to call him father, he's diminishing an important truth that is unfolded in Scripture. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, Peter said, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so while we do not offer animal sacrifices because of the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, we still offer sacrifices. And so Peter will go on and say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness and into his marvelous light. So today, we offer spiritual sacrifices. Good deeds, of course, can never satisfy the just penalty of sin. The average Joe who thinks he earns his way to heaven, if he dies thinking that, the scripture says he ends up in hell. You cannot save yourself. The penalty is death, eternal death. And unless you take the one who is an infinite person in a finite period of time on Golgotha, paid your eternal debt, you'll never see the inside of heaven. But there are sacrifices God calls new covenant believers to make. Here's a chart of some that I made. We're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. This next chart, there we go. We are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. We're to offer monetary sacrifices. He'll underscore that not simply in Malachi, but you find it in the New Testament. Paul will speak of those who give financially to the Lord, that what they give is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. We are to make proclamation kinds of sacrifices. We just read that in 1 Peter 2.9. We are to proclaim the excellencies. You say, how is that a sacrifice? Because many of us are chicken to do so. And our heart begins to beat fast, and we know we have an opportunity to speak about Jesus. And God says, proclaim, speak. Now, you don't beat the door down, but you look for open doors and you pray for them. We're to offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Man tends to separate the two. Scripture never does. For instance, in Hebrews 13 and verse 15, through him, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We're to offer up doing good sacrifices. Ephesians 5.2 or Hebrews 13.16 affirm that. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. 
So we offer sacrifices not to earn God's approval, but because we have it. And if you've been saved, you've been credited with the righteousness of Christ. You're called a, a saint, a holy one. And you can't do anything to make God love you anymore. And you can't do anything to make God love you any less. He loves you through his son. And it is on that basis, this new standing, this new position, that we are to have a new practice. Now, based on 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, uh, the Protestant reformers underscored what was called the priesthood of the believers. They were sickened by these clerical callers, and rightly so. In my view, it is diminishing the truth that God gives. It puts a preacher up here and the people down here. Listen, I'm trying to bring you up to my level. It is true God has authority in the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. But I don't have any kind of access to God that you don't have. And so, biblically speaking, the priesthood of the believer was both vertical and horizontal. We didn't need to go through a bishop or a priest or someone else to approach the living God. We can go directly in the Spirit through the Lord Jesus, and horizontally, you have a ministry. If you're a believer priest, you've been gifted by God to serve the people of God. And so, what I'm trying to say is you don't need to be simply a church leader or a priest, so to speak, as in Malachi's day, for this text of Scripture to apply to you. So if you're taking notes, there are three critical, timeless principles for effective ministry that I would like us to see. First, in verses 1 through 4, we want to consider God's commandment, God's commandment to the priest. If you're new, there's a note-taking outline on the back of your bulletin. You might want to jot down, and it thrills my heart as in the last service to see people taking notes. And before we're done this morning, you'll see it is the person with a hunger for God to learn the Word of God that God is going to use. And some of us are not being used like God would envision for us to be in use because we have an apathetic attitude towards the Holy Scripture. So there's the commandment to the priest, verse 1, and now this commandment is to you, the priest. Now, please note, he's still speaking to the leadership, to the priest. If you do not listen... And if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. And so there are three consequences that God will bring as expressions of discipline if they persist in sin. Point A on your outline, God warns that he will curse their blessings. That's the first one. God warns that he is going to curse their blessings. Again, in verse 2, if you do not listen and if you do not take to heart to give honor to my name, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. God is reminding them if they do not heed his rebuke, if they don't take it to heart, he will curse their blessings. Now, what does that mean? God is simply saying to these men who are supposed to lead, any blessing that you may give, I'll turn it into a curse. And if you think about it long of us, many of us, even in this age, can think of times when blessings have been turned seemingly into a curse. For example, God blesses you with a little boy or a little girl, and there you are in the hospital, and you're just overwhelmed over the preciousness of this gift, of this blessing from God. Children are a blessing of the Lord. But I've witnessed many parents who have failed to do what Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. 
Now, psychology was read into that largely because the person who wrote the books reading it in, who popularized the view, had kids that were rebellious. And so he let his experience shape his theology. He's not saying raise them up in the bent, if they're mechanically inclined, train them up mechanically, if they're artistically or athletically, train them up so when they're old they'll succeed in that. The way, all the way through Proverbs, Darek, is contrasting the way of righteousness versus the way of a fool. And neither does it say, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. That that is a promise that your children may grow up and rebel and go sow their oats. But I'm claiming Proverbs 22, 6, that they'll come back. Actually, the verse is saying just the opposite. If you train them up properly, they won't depart from that way. It doesn't mean they can't have some bumps, but they're going to walk in that way. That is the promise of God Almighty. And so we're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And some people don't take that seriously. Oh, they come to church. I brought them to church. I brought them to Sunday school. But if it's done out of a religious heart, not out of a passionate relationship with the Lord, you can check all the boxes and raise up potentially a juvenile delinquent. And so that child grows up. Before you know it, they're total reprobates. And that little child that you held on their birthday as a blessing seemingly has become a curse. I've seen it happen in other realms. I've seen people that God has blessed with making money. And it's wonderful if God gives someone that ability to make money because they can give and have an influence in the kingdom in a different kind of way. But I've also seen it when a man's goal becomes his God and he's lost perspective. I've seen men and women sometimes with a ho- hobby. It might be football. It might be golf. It might be fishing. And nothing wrong with those things. God created us that we need rest and relaxation. But sometimes those hobbies are so controlling that good thing has become a curse. And so I understand the principle that Malachi is teaching here, but I want you to see specifically how it applies first to the office of Old Testament priests and how they did not honor his name. God says, notice, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. It was a blessing of God to serve as a priest, but God promised that because of their disobedience and compromise, he would turn their blessings into curses. Now, the priest had a power to give a blessing. Now, I know sometimes I'll give a benediction, but understand when I give a benediction at the end of the service or a pastor does and he raises his hand, don't think for one skinny minute that he has some power to bless you that you don't have in turn to be able to do to another person. That's this clerical priest slash lady distinction that the New Testament doesn't make. But understand, under the old covenant, not everyone was a priest. Under the new covenant, we're all believer priests, but not under the old covenant. And so there's a few verses you might want to put in your margin next to this verse, Leviticus 9.22. Leviticus 9.22, let me read it to you. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Put out in your margin the great ironic blessing, number 6, 22 through 27. I won't read it all, but let me read some of it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron 
and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. Another illustration, 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 27. Then the Levitical priest, that was what we're speaking of today, right? Like Aaron, he was a, a Levitical priest. And then the Levitical priest arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place to heaven. So among other things, one of the things a priest could do, he could raise his hands and bless the people. Shalom, barakah, alechem. Shalom, barakah, alechem. Blessing and peace be to you. Blessing and peace be to you. And they would say that, and God would come back and say, ara, 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 curse, curse, curse. And God would take their blessing and turn it into a cursing. And it's really no different today under the new covenant as believer priests. Anytime a, a pastor compromises the word of God and twists it so that he'll be liked or popular, he's not bringing blessing. He's bringing cursing on the people. Certainly you have your liberal apostates who will say doubt the virgin birth and doubting the virgin birth and saying that it is optional like Andy Stanley came out and did. You're questioning the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When a pastor scoffs at the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, he's repudiating a central doctrine that Jesus literally, physically, actually rose from the dead. When a pastor questions the second coming, whatever schedule he thinks it may unfold of, under, if he does not believe in a literal bodily return and he spiritualizes it and says, well, Jesus will return in our hearts, he is bringing a curse on the people. Listen, when a pastor mocks the distinctive roles that men are to play and women are to play, and that's happening all across America today, women can now be pastors. Oh, I wouldn't want to touch that one. It might make some ladies mad and we might lose some of our market share. They're bringing a curse on the people. When a pastor refuses to say what God says about divorce, it's not an unforgivable sin. We're going to discuss it before we're done with this prophet. But when he refuses to say what God specifically says, he's bringing a curse on the people. When a pastor refuses to distinguish the high and holy role that a mother should play, a mother is to be a worker at home. My heart is off to some woman who has to work to put food on the table. But if a preacher is afraid to teach what God plainly said, he's bringing a curse on the people and it has huge ramifications on the people. And so Malachi is saying your benedictions are becoming maledictions. Your blessings are becoming cursing. And so God says, then I will curse the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already. It was already beginning to unfold. Why? Because you, have not, you are not taking it to heart. You're not serving me from the heart. It's all lip service. And these priests knew better. So God warns, first, he'll curse their blessings. Secondly, be on your outline. God warns he will corrupt their seed. He will corrupt their seed. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, the NAS 2020 says, 
the new King James says, your descendants. I'm going to rebuke your offspring. The old King James and the American Standard Version, which was a the predecessor, the American Standard version to what was later the New American Standard that has been updated many times, says, behold, I will corrupt your seed. And again, it's the Hebrew word zerah. And the word seed that is used in the Hebrew Old Testament can refer to literal seed like you plant in the ground, or it can refer to seed meaning your descendants, your offspring, your children. And so offspring, descendants, and children are rendered in most nearly every translation, including the New King James, in order to clarify what is in view in the context. Occasionally, someone will say, well, he's saying to these priests, look, uh, your seed is going to be cursed. That is, the people are going to go out there and plant. And when they bring their tithes, because the seed is cursed, they're not going to have much to bring. Now, he's going to address that issue later in the third chapter. But contextually, you don't need to know Hebrew to figure that out. Contextually, he's dealing with the offspring. Remember, you didn't, inha- you didn't just uh, choose to be a priest. You inherited that office. You had to be of the family of Levi. And so seed here is children or descendants. And so what does God mean when he says, I will corrupt your seed or your descendants or your family? Understand that these priests who are raising up the next generation of priests were living so compromisingly that they were going to do a terrible job in raising up the next generation. And so God makes it very clear that he's not going to allow that to happen. And of course, he describes this uh, as a commandment, a commandment not so much in something that is performed, but more in terms of what God is decreeing. And often the word commandment is used that way in Scripture. Let me give you an example. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. The book of Nahum is written to Ninevites. Your name will no longer or about Ninevites because God wants to give the children of Israel some reprise because these are such wicked people. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will eliminate the carved image and the cast metal image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Now, if you know the prophet Nahum, you know that he is not giving a warning or a call to repentance. Now, there was a prophet 100 years earlier. The book bears his name, the prophet Jonah. He came and preached to these Ninevites, these Assyrians. The capital of Assyria, of course, was Nineveh. But a hundred years had gone by, and this generation had repented of their grandparents' repentance. And this was a wicked people. You know, when we were in Yad Vashem a few weeks ago, it was obvious some people came out just blown away as to how the Jewish people were treated, especially during the time of the Second World War. Now, as terrible and as heinous as that was, when you understand what these Ninevites did, they bragged about their brutality, whether it was cutting open pregnant women and discarding their babies, whether it was taking their little children and offering them to God, to their so-called God on a fire, just brutality after brutality. When they captured you, they would often pluck out your eyes, cut off your hands. 
read the book of Nahum for some details. And so here is a people that God had basically said, I've had enough. Because God looks at nations. That's why nations come and they go. God looks at the United States of America and he sees our appetite for sexual immorality and for filth. He sees our desire to be entertained with sexual immorality. He sees our abortion mills. He sees our disdain for the definition of marriage. He sees our willingness to accept premarital and extramarital sex. He sees our readiness to embrace homosexuality and transgenderism, where there is no longer just two genders, male and female, but over 100. God sees it. And there comes a point like in Nahum's day when the prophet Nahum writes, God says, I've had enough. And the dam of his grace and mercy breaks way to his wrath. God did the same with the people who were in the promised land, the Canaanite, and there are many various expressions. God said, we'll wait until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. 400 years. God gave them 400 years to repent, and what do they do? They only got worse, and they were raising wicked, evil children, and God said, go in and wipe them off the map. People today see the wickedness that's happening in America, and they say, why doesn't God do something? He is doing something. And his silence in many ways is significant because he is still extending his grace and giving people an opportunity to repent. God in his grace had been waiting patiently for the Ninevites to turn, but now it was too late. And so keep that in mind as we read this verse. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will eliminate the carved image and the cast metal image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. This is a command of a coming catastrophe on these ungodly, idol-worshiping, baby-sacrificing people. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I understand Nineveh at this point was like what Washington, D.C. is to the world. It was like the world capital And God said, enough, your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. He's speaking here of coming judgment. He literally says, your your, your name will be graved. I'm going to bury it. And it's going to be over. That's the parallel here in verse 3 of Malachi. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring. Not the ungodly Assyrians who'd rejected the revelation of the living God, but these priests who had compromised in their service. This is a commandment. This is a decree if you do not get right. They had a high and holy privilege to lead the people of God. Now, the first half of the curse involved rebuking or cutting off the priest's offspring. That is their physical descendants. Why? Because God knew that the sins of the priests would be passed on to their children. Now, God has always had his remnant, and he will perpetuate his ministry of priesthood through godly Levites, but not through these in Levi's day. In similar fashion, God said in the Decalogue, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. 
These priests knew what God wanted. They knew what God expected. They were keepers of the law, but they willfully, knowingly, deliberately compromised anyway. Now remember, the priesthood was inherited through the tribe of Levi. You didn't assign yourself as a priest. God said this in Joshua 18 when they were dividing up the land. For the Levites have no portion among you. Now they had a place to live, but they didn't have, this is my property with my name on it like the other tribes. For the Levites have no portion among you because the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And none of us here this morning can expect to develop a healthy, God-loving offspring if we are compromised. When I came here as a pastor, this church had regular baby dedications. And we never discussed this in the process of candidating here, but I said, I won't do those. Why wouldn't I do them? Well, number one, you don't find it in Scripture. What you find in Scripture is post-conversion baptism. Peter in Acts 10, after Cornelius and his house had been saved, surely, he says, no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit. Regeneration takes place first. Who received the Holy Spirit, how? Just as we did, can he? And so while baptism is taught in the Gospels, while it's modeled in the Acts and commanded in other places, God is clear of no such thing for infant, or for infant dedication, much less infant baptism. Why do churches do infant bap- uh, dedication? It's typically to placate those who have come from churches where they baptize little infants. And so they get as close as they can by dedicating these little children. And it placates parents and it placates grandparents because grandparents say, well, when are you going to have your baby baptized? Well, Dad, Mom, we're going to have this dedication, so come on. I'm not here to placate anyone. And there's a real danger in doing this on both sides, whether it's infant baptism or infant dedication. The line of demarcation is a race. Churches that typically don't have post-conversion baptism and place the emphasis where God does There's no chance for a child to basically say, this is my message that I have embraced, and I am declaring it to you by believer's baptism. That's what the Word of God teaches. Now, it is true that Hannah dedicated her baby to the Lord, but that was not in the manner in which people do it today. She dedicated Samuel to be a priest of God. And I'm not against, per se, someone taking their baby and saying, here to the Lord, Audrey and I, with every child we have, one of the first moments we had alone, we'd take that precious child and say, Lord, he or she is yours. We give him or her back to you. But understand, it gives, sadly, parents a false sense of assurance that everything is okay. The emphasis in Scripture is nowhere in dedicating babies. The emphasis in Scripture is on dedicating parents. For the parent to have a sold-out, dedicated life because they are the impetus as they walk in the way, as they rise up, as they lie down to teach the children the Word of God. Well, here are these priests. And they had compromised, and God said, I'm going to cut off your offspring. Now, please do not misunderstand me. There's a multiplicity of reasons why sometimes couples are barren. And my heart can break for them, and I've prayed with so many, and we want a baby, but seemingly we can't have one. But sometimes, 
A couple cannot have a baby, and God has closed the womb because there is known compromise in the heart. And I would say the general principle, to whom much is given, much is expected. And if God has entrusted you with much and you blow that off, God may close the womb and rebuke the offspring because God doesn't want you to raise some ungodly child to fuel the flames of hell. God doesn't give you children so they can populate hell. God gives you children as a blessing that they might be converted and call upon Jesus in faith because while God has children, he has no grandchildren. So here are these priests and God warns them he'll curse their blessings, he'll corrupt their seed. Third, God warns that he will contaminate them with dung. He'll contaminate them with dung. God tells us here in verse three, behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring I will spread refuge, or, or a dung, you could put it, as some English Bibles say, on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Now, he is illustrating very graphically this curse. He said, I'm going to spread manure on your face. And really, there could be no greater contamination or disgrace that these priests could have than being identified with the waste of the sacrifice. Now you have to understand that under God's law, certain parts of the sacrifice were to be offered with God. And then certain parts, the entrails, the skin, and the the dung, the manure, were to be brought outside the camp and they were to be burned. And of course, the priests expected to be identified with the sacrifice at the altar, that he might be identified with it when it's offered up to the living God, but he had no desire to be identified with a portion of the sacrifice that was supposed to be burned, especially the dung. Now, God is not literally saying, I'm going to spread manure on your faces. But spiritually speaking, metaphorically, that's what I'm going to do. Remember, what did they do when they had the tabernacle? They brought these parts outside the camp and they burned it. And when the temple was built, they brought them outside the city gates and they burned it as a so-called judgment. Listen to the writer of the Hebrews. Remember, the temple is still standing when this book is written, Hebrews 13. He said, for the bodies of those animals, and this is an important book, Hebrews, because you had confessing Jewish followers of Yeshua who are trying to associate themselves with the temple sacrifices to relieve the persecution. And he says, you don't do that because you're sending a double message. And so he says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. That's where the entrails, that's where the dung of the animals went. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. So Hebrews 13 makes this connection between the animal sacrifices of the temple earlier, the tabernacle, with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Jesus didn't die where the temple was. He died on the mountains of Moriah. Remember, David placated the Lord with a sacrifice on top of Mount Moriah where the Dome of the Rock is. And on that same spot, Solomon was instructed to build the first temple. Then later, the second temple was rebuilt there. But Jesus, outside of the city of Jerusalem, hung there with those crucified men. He was outside the gate to satisfy God's judgment. 
because God is a God of love, but he is a God of justice. And justice and love met there on the cross of Golgotha. And so these priests were guilty in their ministry and the kinds of sacrifices that they offered. And God said, I'm going to rub dung on your faces. So here is Malachi, and God is warning these priests through this prophet of God. And let me just say parenthetically, when a pastor or a church leader or a church member compromises what God has called them to do, God metaphorically can rub dung on their faces. I've seen it. I've seen it not only with pastors. I've seen it with entire congregations. Here's a church. My wife and I and my son and daughter-in-law were visiting a picture. This is a Lutheran church in Greenville, and I snapped this picture of the side entrance. Study to show thyself approved unto God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Every Sunday night, our children recite that. And if your children are not in Awana, and they could be in Awana, they're missing out. Oh, maybe you're pulling it off and you've got this scripture memory program with the same excitement and enthusiasm and motivation. Wonderful. But if you're not, your kids are missing out. So this was the entrance, the side entrance they walked into. We're going in here to study the word of God that we might be approved of the Lord. 15 feet away, this is the sign that they had at the same church. Trans people are God's people. They were celebrating Pride Month. This was just last June. And it was very, very sad. What they celebrate, God calls an abomination. So you have pastors today who are afraid. And so Andy Stanley last week had two homosexuals married to each other as his keynote speakers. God hates that. God is offended by that. And he's offended by churches that soft sell what God has plainly said. Homosexuals, transgender people can be God's people. And God wants them to be his people if they repent and believe on the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Now understand, we live in a day where people are celebrating evil more and more. And sometimes what a priest or a leader can do, a church can do, and it's a slow process. Remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus? But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, word order in Greek is very important because it's how you highlight or underline or emphasize something. Literally, it says, your first love you have left. It's not in the typical word order. Your first love you have left. Now, 35 years earlier, when Paul writes the letter to the church at Ephesus, he commends them for their great faith and love. But now Jesus said, you have left your first love. This is an often misquoted verse. People said, well, they had lost their first love. No, it doesn't say that. It said they had left their first love. There's a difference between leaving and losing something. Something can be lost quite accidentally, but leaving something is a deliberate act. It may take place over a course of time, but it's a deliberate act. If you lose something, you don't know where to find it. But if you left something, you know precisely what you need to do. And by the time Jesus writes this epistle to the church at Ephesus, these are second-generation believers. 
They were still pure in their doctrine, straight as an arrow in terms of their orthodoxy. It's not that they hated Jesus, but they didn't love him the way they used to. Their devotion had dwined, and so straightforwardly, he says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I love what Jesus does. He not only highlights the problem in five of seven of these letters, because only two are commended. He not only highlights his sin, but then he tells them how they can make it right. Now, I've told you many times before that if you are saved, you are called beloved of God. It's a verb. In the noun form, it says you're a member of his beloved. Now, God doesn't apply that term or that verb to lost people. While God so loved the world, he loves everyone in a broad sense, believers are his beloved. They are beloved of God. He has a special affection on his own, just like you have a, typically a special affection on your own children that you might not have on other children. You love other kids, but not the same way you love your own. And so while we're all beloved of God, we're not all approved of God. And this is what we were studying last Wednesday. And some of you need to be here who could be here. And I told you this particular handout in the series on basic discipleship may be the most important. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, not beloved of God. You're beloved of God if you've been saved. Approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. And so we underscored last Wednesday that just as there are two parents in physical birth, there are two parents in spiritual birth. We're born again on the one hand by the Spirit of God. We're born on the other hand by the Word of God. For you have been born again of seed, not which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Well, the same seed, the same Word the Spirit of God uses to save us is the same Word He uses to grow us. And so then He will say, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. So if God uses His Word to save us, and God uses His Word to grow us, and you have a limited, limited knowledge of Scripture then your ability to be approved or used of God as a workman is greatly diminished by choices you've made. You see, your priorities show. You know all the stats on your sports team, but you couldn't name the 12 apostles if your life depended on it. You see, our priorities show. And so right after this, he will remind Timothy that God uses people who not only study the word, but who are clean. And so he says, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And so the Spirit of God does not minister the Word of God through a dirty vessel. And so God is saying to these priests in verse 3, because of your disobedience, unless you repent, I too will consider you unclean, and in my heart and mind, I will remove you outside the camp. Listen, it's a privilege to be able to share the word of God, whether it's with a friend at work or your own children. But God calls us to be unstained by the world. So let's ask a question, why is it that God is going to discipline these priests in this way. 
For the same reason, he disciplines believers today because he loves us and he cares deeply about us. Please notice verse four. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So the commandment that God was sending to them through his prophet was so that they might get right. And so that's the whole purpose of the cursing and the blessing, the corrupting of the seed and the contamination on their faces with dung, that my covenant may continue. He wants them to get right, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. All these things I'm doing are not because I hate you, but because I love you. The writer of the Hebrews in quoting Proverbs says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which all true believers, all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, as a pastor, I've met a lot of Christians over the years with dung on their faces. I'm thinking of a dear friend who slowly lowered his standards. You know, most people who crash in the ministry and life, it's not because of a blowout. It's because of a slow leak. And he began to listen to certain kinds of music. And I say, you know, that's probably not the best stuff to be listening to. And he told me about some movie he had seen. That's not a good movie. And because he had fed his mind on filth and sensual thoughts, One day, he had the bright idea that he would go and just visit that section of the great city that he lived in to see where all the prostitutes operated. He said, when I first went there, I had no intention of doing anything. I just wanted to see them in action. Of course, when he calls me, he said, I know you're going to find out about it. Tell me what happened. Well, I went, and I went from just seeing what these women do to pulling over and rolling down my window and solicitating one of these women. That woman reached in the car and put a handcuff around mine. He had just solicited a police officer. And it was front page news. And my wife and I, just for our own protection, to underscore the consequences that Satan never shows you. We listed 25 different groups associated with the church he pastored that he had brought disdain on. And after everyone in the city knew it and I found out, I said, well, I'm glad that happened to you, that it was a police officer that you hadn't broken yet your marriage covenant other than in your mind and heart. But you see, he didn't listen to counsel. And that's what happens. We think we're such big shots 
that we can toy with this sensuality that is everywhere and it somehow won't affect us. That's just what the devil wants you to believe. So God is disciplining these priests. There's God's commandment to the priest, and there's God's covenant with the priest. And there are several truths that he mentions about this covenant. He begins by spelling out for us the original covenant that he had made with Levi, this great priest from which all the Levitical priests would come. And so first he underscores the intention, the intention of God's covenant. So there's God's contempt for the priest, and then he underscores the intention of God's covenant. Contempt, and it should say intention, the intention of God's covenant. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Now, the word covenant is a very important word, and Malachi mentions it four times in the second chapter, and he'll mention it again in chapter 3. And over and over again, God emphasizes this concept of covenant. So what does this term mean? Well, it's the Hebrew word barit, and it simply means a compact or an agreement, and you don't have to know Hebrew. You could figure it out from the context. And so in the Bible, it's used of God entering into a contract with another person that the persons or person with whom he is entering into covenant with might be blessed. And almost always, it's done on the basis of blood. And of course, God speaks of cutting a covenant in Scripture. And the ultimate cutting of the covenant, of course, was done at the cross. When I was a child, it was still possible on Saturday mornings to watch cowboy and Indian programs. And the cowboy with the white hat, he was always a good guy, and he'd try to conquer the Indians, and I'm not trying to be, you know, dismissive of Indians and their importance, but, you know, I'm just telling you what we did as kids, all right? And so uh, they would eventually come to this agreement, this contract, this covenant, and they would cut themselves on the wrists, and then they would connect their wrists together, and the Indian would say, ugh, we're now blood brothers, you know? And, and, And the concept comes right out of Scripture here. I hope you know that if you are a Christian, you are a member of a new covenant. The covenant that Jesus said at the Last Supper was enacted with his own blood on a cross. And of course, as you want to read about the Levitical covenant, you might want to go home and read Numbers chapter 25. There's different covenants in the scripture. Most of us at least know the Abrahamic covenant because we've spoken a lot about that from Genesis 15, that God cut a covenant with Abraham that was unilateral while he was asleep, had nothing to do with the Jewish people's obedience, had everything to do with God, that he would give them a land, a seed, and a blessing. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Then, of course, there's the Noadic covenant. Most of us at least know the symbol of it, the rainbow. There's the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And then there's the Levitical covenant. And sadly, I don't think this covenant gets much press, but read Exodus 32 or Numbers 25, and you'll understand it more fully. And so God reminds these rebellious priests through Malachi of a covenant that he made beginning with Levi. And he wants them, in essence, to go back and look at men like Levi and Phineas and to see the covenant that they made with the living God. And so speaking of Levi, who is the progenitor of this line of priests, 
God says, he revered me and stood in awe of me. You should circle the word revered in the word awe. This word revered can also be rendered fear in other English Bibles. It speaks of a reverential awe of of God. And the second word is awe, which can also be rendered as fear as well. Quite literally, he says, my covenant with him, verse 5, was one of life and peace. I gave them, the terms of the covenant, to him, that is Levi, as an object of fear. So he feared me, and the Hebrew says, and he stood affrightened of my name, literally. The literal translation is a little cumbersome, but the point is, is that he took seriously what God said. So on the one hand, when you think about fearing God, the New Testament says in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So because God is propitiated, we don't with a cringing fear approach God like he's gonna beat us up because all of the punishment was taken out on Golgotha. Yet on the other hand, Acts 9 tells us, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So put those two thoughts together. The fear of the Lord is not the fear of being doomed to hell, not if you've been saved. If you're not saved, the wrath of God abides on you. And if you're listening to me somewhere in the world and you're already getting bored, you've got a problem. You're either lost or your heart is a million miles out of fellowship with God. Oh, you could watch the football game last night for three hours, but the Word of God is not that important to you. That's a spiritual problem. But if you've been saved, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Yet repeatedly, not just in the New Testament, but in the prophets, Isaiah, for instance, asked, who is among you that fears the Lord? I think the modern evangelical church knows very little of the fear of the Lord. But do you know there's no greater mark of godly character than to fear God, and there's no greater mark of wicked behavior than not to fear Him? When Paul summarizes the depravity of man, he says in Romans 3, quoting the Old Testament, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what's happening all across America. 90% of Americans, some predict, at least 80, are not in church today because they don't fear God. And we're seeing this growing lawlessness. They don't fear the police. They don't fear anything. They'll slit your throat if they're given the opportunity. And sadly, The government of this nation is feeding the problem because they are to exercise the sword to curb evil. And in a matter of hours, people who are vandalizing and hitting, and they're out on the streets. And so when Malachi reminds the priests of Levi in verse 15, he wrote, he revered me and stood in awe of my name. He links fear and awe together. But unfortunately, it's conspicuously missing today. Secondly, he logically moves to, from the intention of God's covenant to the integrity of God's covenant. I guess intention is good, integrity. Look at verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and uprightness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. Stay with me. I'm almost done. God expected his priests to keep his covenant out of a heart of integrity. 
We just we find in verse 6 that the, the Levites in Moses' day had a belief that behaved. They had a belief in the living God that resulted in a shoe-letter kind of life. These people, the original Levites, they weren't just collecting a paycheck. They were serving the Lord out of a passion. Notice, true instruction was in his mouth, and uprightness was not found on his lips. Here was a preacher who affirmed the integrity of God's word. He believed it as the inerrant, infallible, eternal word of God. He had a ministry of the word, but notice also he had a ministry by his walk. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. This is a reverence to the way he lived. Here was a man who lived what he preached, and so he had peace. There was a smile in his heart because he knew God had a smile on his face. And notice his witness, and he turned many back from iniquity. I think Levi is one of the great unsung heroes of the Old Testament. When you go back and you study your life, you soon find out that Levi was one who stared the people away from apostasy and he put a healthy fear of God and he encouraged them to live for the Lord and to speak for the Lord. And then third, notice beyond the intention of God's covenant and the integrity of his covenant, the instruction of God's covenant. The instruction, look at verse 7 the instruction of God's covenant. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's what priests did. Listen to Deuteronomy 17. Not only did they offer sacrifices, they taught. Moses wrote, so you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in the office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict. Then you shall act in accordance with the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to act in accordance with everything that they instruct you to do, in accordance with the terms of the law about which they instruct you, and in accordance with the verdict which they tell you. You shall act. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. That was as important as the sacrifices they taught. They were occupied with teaching the word of God, and so is a pastor today. And so the priest should preserve knowledge. Instruction was to be found on his lips and coming from his mouth, whether it's to God's people or to those who are lost. That's why Paul will say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, until I come, give attention to what? The public reading of Scripture. Why? Because there were no codexes. The average person didn't have a scroll. The time they heard the word of God is when the church gathered. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself, to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Then third and finally, beyond God's commandment to the priest and God's covenant with the priest, there's God's contempt for the priest. God's contempt for the priest. And in verse 8, we find a picture of the priest in their abandonment of God. Their abandonment of God. Let's read um, verse 8 carefully. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So he tells these people that they are causing folks to stumble. 
by what they did. As the pastor goes, so goes the congregation. As the pulpit, typically, so goes the pew. They had corrupted the covenant. They were not teaching the scriptures accurately by the practices they were allowing. They were guilty of showing partiality in instruction. They were straying away from the hard and difficult truths and gave a watered-down message. But as verse 9 indicates, in addition to their abandonment of God, this led to their abasement by God, their abasement by God. And we'll conclude with this. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in the instruction. They wanted to be popular. They wanted to gain friends. What was the end result? They lost all their respect. God said, I have made you despise and abase before all the people. And let me say, if you haven't learned it already, leaders with integrity and character will have their enemies, but very often even their enemies will respect them. I know there's a lot here, and this is a difficult passage to swallow, and some of you are bored spitless. But let me give some applications as we close off. Number one, let your pastor study the Word of God. You may be listening to me here or in one of our auditoriums or you're live streaming somewhere in the world or you're listening through Apple, Roku, Sermon Audio, YouTube, Facebook, some other vehicle. If you've got a pastor, you should. Let your pastor study the Word of God. That's his principal calling. I speak to pastors all the time. And so many that are frustrated, and I always remind them, look, your calling is simple. God has called you to pray. No one can do that for you. God has called you to evangelize the lost. You lead by example. Because if we're following Christ, we're fishers of men. If we're not fishing for men, you can hide under all kinds of cover of spirituality. You're not following Jesus. And I said, you are to preach the word. Now, they may want you to be at every hospital bed, and you may want to be. But there's so many things you're going to have to let go and let the people do if you're to do what God has called you to do. And let the chips fall where they may. Secondly, as believer priests, we should all study the word of God. Now, if you expect your pastor as a priest on this earth to study the word of God. Remember, you too are a priest. And like his lips, your lips should speak knowledge. It should be in your mouth. And it's very possible, I think, to study the word of God without internalizing it. You can memorize it, but not really know it. Look, I'm thrilled for those who read through the Bible every year. I do. I, I listen to the book of Malachi. As I told you, you're just coming in this morning. It took 14 minutes. Not long. But you can come to all kinds of Bible studies. Don't look at your watch. You can come to all kinds of Bible studies and not really be changed by God's Word. You can read through the Bible in a year and have a cold, stagnant, hard heart. We're all beloved of God. But God wants us to be approved. 
I mean, what will your life be like at the end? I was supposed to have lunch at noon with the pastor. Instead, I was there at his funeral. Just on Thursday. What will your life be like at the end? How will you measure success? By how much money you had? How big your house was? Listen, the only things that will last for all eternity is God, His Word, people, and angels. This whole planet, someday he will burn with fire. And your soul will live on timeless, endless, for all of eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And if God has saved you for heaven, then you should be involved in evangelizing the lost and helping them to grow in their faith. You can't do that out of a dirty heart. And you can't do it if your heart hasn't been born again. For unless you're born again, the things of the Spirit of God will be foolishness to you. You'll be sick and tired of it. You won't be able to stand it. It's just the marks of an unregenerate, unsaved person. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And it's a born-again heart that will be able to praise and discern and embrace and be changed from Scripture. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. I pray today for someone here who's lost, who needs to be saved. Help that man, that woman, that boy or girl to humble themselves, to call upon Jesus in faith, to admit that they are morally bankrupt in your eyes and that they need a Savior who can redeem them. But for those of us who have crossed that line, may we not be blind and foolish. May we remember that him who thinks he stands can easily fall because there's no temptation that has overtaken us but such as is common to man. Help us to watch over our hearts with all diligence for you said from it comes the very issues of life. And help us in this reprobate culture increasingly filled with evil, to guard our hearts and to fill them with a true and right and life-changing knowledge of Scripture. Thank you for the Spirit's help to accomplish this, and we bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here and you've never publicly confessed Jesus as Lord, he said, if you won't confess me before men, I'll never confess you before my Father. Walking this aisle won't change you, but if you know Jesus, you'll be unashamed. And that unashamedness should express itself in New Testament baptism. Maybe you're here, you've been saved and baptized, but you need a church. Well, we need you, and if you want to come and partner with us because you're serious, we don't need more members. We need disciples. And if you want to come and partner with us, we invite you to step out. Matt, come and lead us. If you have a decision, whether you're in Graniteville or Gray, step out now.